Episode nine. I cannot believe we are one episode away from double digits. How cool is that? This week, we're joined by Mark Lefebvre, who happens to be the former roommate of our dad, Big Tim, uh, in college years. So a really small world. We're learning that more and more every day. I love those stories, and we're so thankful to be connected to Mark. Uh, for those who have heard me talk about WSCAFM.org, our great partners up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Mark is a radio DJ and has his own great story of addiction, alcoholism, and recovery that it is very important to him to keep the message moving just like Faded. When Faded uh, became a real thing and we wanted to get it off the ground, he heard it and reached out and, and wanted to do anything he could to be a part of that. And in conjunction with that, he started his own project that's very similar in the form of a podcast. Um, so he's been so wonderful and the team up there has been so, so gracious to allow the Faded podcast to be streaming on a larger podcast series uh, that they're putting out into the world as well. Um, it includes the Faded podcast as an intro series and then goes into Mark's series, Thanks for Asking, which is highlighting family and loved ones' stories of addiction and recovery. Unfortunately, in this world, there's not a ton of resources um, that are simple and right out there for family members and loved ones. There's a lot for addicts and alcoholics, and we as loved ones can um, really piggyback off of those quite a bit. But what we're aiming to do between these two podcast projects is to bring as much awareness as possible. So we're super pumped to have Mark with us this week, specifically even more excited to have him tell his own story of addiction and recovery, um, which is both heartbreaking and also very inspiring. He mentioned that he hadn't told his story publicly before, so this is really exciting um, and we're so glad you're tuning in. His story goes through his childhood. Um, he gives us a lot of insight into what he went through. He sheds a lot of light into childhood trauma, which is something we haven't talked uh, you know, about that much yet, but certainly very important into our continued education for all of you listeners and for our own selves in how we understand and get to know this disease um, even better. Childhood trauma um, is definitely one of many things that a lot of people struggle with, not only just in addiction, but in other stories. And a big part of you know the, the treatment of addiction and, and alcoholism uh, sometimes has to do with dual diagnosis. And uh, believe it or not, those that struggle with alcoholism and addiction, um, a lot of people also struggle with other things in addition to that. And so it's not just about treating your alcoholism or treating your drug problem. It's also about getting down to the bottom of what is going on with you inside, internally, with your mental health, and really making sure that you're rounding out your recovery and your treatment um, by understanding every bit of yourself. So uh, Mark's story is a great insight into that topic, and he does a great job of giving us kind of a detailed account of what he's been through. Um, he takes us through his college years, the time with my dad, and then um, into his years as a top executive at IBM. Um, you know, a, a very kind of on the surface, normal story from what we would think, um, but there is a lot of darkness and a lot of faded underneath when he gets into it. So Mark, thank you for joining us. We are so thrilled to have you behind the scenes with us um, and continuing this message. Your work is incredible. What 
what you're doing is changing lives. Thank you for your dedication to not only your own recovery, but to so many others. Um, And we look so forward to continuing this with you. So everybody, thank you for tuning in. As always, enjoy and welcome to episode nine. Welcome, Faded Fam. Um, We have a very special guest today, somebody that's been um, actually behind the scenes with us for a couple months now that I'm really excited about, Uh, Mark Lefebvre up in New Hampshire, and um, a pretty- Seacoast of New Hampshire. There you go, Seacoast. Thanks for joining us. Um, My pleasure. It's been so wonderful and helping to to get our, our faded story off the ground. We'll get to that a little later, but you yourself are recovered. And, you know, to start this off, I would just love to uh, to know more about you and your story. Um, I know that uh, you're excited to tell it. So um, <laughs> tell us a bit about you and uh, who you are, where you came from, and, uh, and what sure. your story is all about. Sure. So um, thanks, uh, Jackie, for inviting me to participate. And I have to tell you that the popularity of the Faded series up here in New Hampshire is tremendous. We've had over uh, 150 downloads of the first eight episodes, and we've got a number of people following it through WSCA up here in Portsmouth. So uh, thanks for allowing us to participate and partner with you and your family on this. Thank you. Um, So who's Mark? (laughs) Um, first of all, I, um, uh, yes, I'm trying to figure out how far back you want to go. We're going to go back. We're going to go, we're going to turn back. Uh, But basically I grew up in central Massachusetts in a blue collar, I'd say middle-class to lower middle-class family. Um, my dad, uh, was a firefighter and uh, had a number of different jobs that he, uh, he moonlighted with, uh, to make ends meet. My mom was, uh, at home at the time when I was growing up, but, uh, she worked in a bank, uh, both before and after I came into the picture. But, um, I'm the oldest of four boys. There are only six years, um, between the four of us. And wow. yeah, so I, you know, I, I grew up in a family where, you know, alcohol and, um, later on, um, drugs in the form of uh, weed were very, very uh, prevalent. Um, I grew up in a, an environment where uh, the neighbors the neighbors would get together with uh, each other on somebody's stoop, their front porch, uh, in the course of uh, the nice weather and so forth, and indoors during the uh, inclement weather. And, you know, they, they just got together and socialized, and beer was always part of that picture, yeah. and, um, you know, for as long as I can remember. Um, but I, I grew up, uh, initially, we lived in the projects, and we lived upstairs for my Italian grandmother, which was kind of a hoot. And those cool. are the fondest uh, memories as a, as a kid. And then we moved into our own home, and then I went off to college and so forth. So that's kind of a, a demographic setting. Again, I was the oldest of four boys, and um, two of my brothers are surviving. I lost um, my third brother when he was 18, back when I was uh, in college, ironically, yeah. Um, when I was uh, 21 years old. Mm. And we can talk a little bit about that because uh, that childhood trauma and that experience um, was certainly part of what I was trying to escape from. Yeah. As I surrounded myself with um, 
self-medicating <laughs> mm, absolutely uh, behaviors and so forth. So anyway, that's kind of uh, sort of uh, the lay of the land there. Awesome. And where, um, you said, where was your um, family home growing up? Oh, Leominster, Massachusetts, which Mass. is about um, maybe 10 miles north of Worcester, where your dad and I went to school. Awesome. I love it. I love, I miss New England. Um, I don't miss the weather, but I miss New England and I love, love going up to visit. That's great. Um, and you're now in New Hampshire. Yes. My wife and I and my family, my wife and I moved up here in 1985. So we've been here 35 years. Um, I've managed to lose much of my accent, but not all of it. I catch myself <laughs> every now and then. And the only reason I know that I still don't have that accent is when I hear my brothers talk, it's brutal. And it's even more brutal when I hear my wife's family talk. Oh my gosh. It brings me back home. It makes yeah. me happy. I love, I love the accent. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, we've been up here in the seacoast since 1985. So tell me, tell me a little bit, um, about your early experiences maybe with drugs and alcohol or kind of, you know, what's your earliest memory of something that might've been a little different or that might've been a first experience or similar um, for your story? Oh, that's a great question because um, I often say when I do share my story, uh, some people drink to kind of feel comfortable in their own skin, to build confidence, to lose their inhibitions, um, to escape um, emotional pain. Mm -hmm. When I started uh, drinking, which was primarily at the age of 14, although, you know, every once in a while I'd steal a beer out of the, out of the cooler when we had a family gathering or something like that, but nothing, you know, that was really out of control. You know, I drank for the effect. I liked the way it felt. I liked the way it made me feel. And later on, uh, I, I kind of figured out that, you know, that was kind of a way to self-medicate. You know, I was feeling good about having a buzz on um, in order to take my mind off of whatever it was that was uh, either troubling me or causing emotional pain. So, you know, the first time I ever really got drunk, I was 14 years old. I did a sleepover out in the woods with some friends. One of their older brothers bought a case and there were three of us and we finished the case off. And, you know, that was that. And, um, you know, like I said, from that point forward, you know, it was mostly, you know, how do we get together on weekends and sneak beer or alcohol out of our parents' cupboards or refrigerators? or get an older sibling. I was the oldest. So when I was, when I was a kid, the drinking age was only 18. Yeah. And um, I, I, I was able to go into a, a liquor store or a package store, a packy as we used to call it in Massachusetts. <laughs> I used to be able to go in at the age of 16 and I'd never get carded. Yeah. And uh, I had my first experience in a nightclub when I was 16. And, um, you know, I never thought of uh, myself as being a problem drinker until you know, I, I guess the first signpost for me was um, babysitting a neighbor's uh, kids. Uh, it was just literally next door. And um, I broke into their liquor cabinet and uh, they had a bottle of Canadian Club, which is absolutely horrible. I hate Canadian whiskey. Um, and I drank what I thought was probably about eight or nine shots in a very short amount of time. I blacked out. Uh, they woke me up when they got home. I was completely disoriented. They probably knew by my condition that uh, I was really out of it. And uh, I was so drunk that I could barely make it home. And the back screen door to my parents' house, uh, the, the inside door wasn't, um, wasn't locked. And I couldn't open the screen door and I'm pounding on the door. And my brother finally, my brother who's a year younger than me came over and opened the door and he's saying, you know, what's going on with you? I couldn't oh, yeah. open the screen door, which was not locked. And 
passed out on the floor, woke up the next morning, and my father said that, uh, you know, how'd, how'd you like that experience? And to be honest, I couldn't wait to do it again. Yeah. Couldn't it's, wait to do it again. Seems like a theme. I mean, do you remember, so back to that original case of beer when you were 14, do you remember like that feeling back then or was it a oh, little yeah. bit? Yeah. I, I didn't, it was very rare until I got older that I was a blackout drinker. And, and I only did that on a handful of occasions. You know, I also smoked weed for the first time that same summer. And uh, it took a few times for me to really get the effect of it. And it's yeah. so much stronger now with their ability to, you know, um, find different strains and so forth and, and grow it and, and cultivate it and, and so forth. So, you know, so it wasn't long before I was actually dabbling in harder drugs, but probably not until I was um, 17 or 18 years old. Okay. And that's, I mean, that seems like a, a fairly normal progression for most, right? It's you kind of go alcohol into weed and then what, what did you get into next? And kind of what, what was your environment like around there? Like wh where were you getting it? Was it a group of friends or was it just yeah. around? Like how did that, um, you know, I was a very high achieving partier. Um, hmm. I was, I went to school in a, a class size of about 500 and my class rank was about 20. Wow. And, you know, I, I, you know, I was an AP student, calculus, second year physics, chemistry, um, and all that stuff really came easy to me, really easy. I was also, I played football until my junior year, and I played baseball, varsity baseball. Back when I was in school, junior high school, I uh, was 7, 8, and 9, and high school was 10, 11, and 12. Mm -hmm. We didn't make the transition to freshman in high school until after I graduated. So yeah. junior high school was a separate school altogether. So, but when I was 14 and 15, I was still in junior high school, wasn't driving, took a bus. So, and the only reason I mentioned that is that, you know, I would smoke weed most days at the bus stop before going to school. And I was still able to, you know, ace all my, I was a straight A student in high school. Wow. Um, and, um, and I also, like I said, I, I was, I played varsity baseball. And I was in the I was an outfielder. I never mixed drugs in playing baseball because probably one of the hardest things to do is to hit a baseball, um, so, you know, sober and straight. You know, let alone, uh, you know, after smoking <laughs> and drinking. Right. Um, and I really, really loved baseball, so I wasn't going to yeah. put it that at any risk. Um, but towards uh, my 16, 17 birthday, you know, the drugs that were readily available in addition to to weed were. Um, uh, THC in the pill form. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if that's uh, around anymore. Uh, so THC in pill form, that was popular. Uh, hash and hash oil was popular. And um, mescaline was popular. And mushrooms were popular. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to say that I never dabbled in psychedelics, but um, I did mushrooms quite a bit. So I guess that would qualify. <laughs> yep, sure did. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it because it was allegedly organic, but who knows what the hell was in there. Right. And then also at one point, somebody slipped me some PCP that I know was PCP. Yeah. And that was pretty scary, that experience. Um, yeah, that was really, really, really scary. <laughs> but <laughs> so those are the drugs that were available while I was in high school. Um, yep. You know, I never touched anything like cocaine until I was out of school. Um, but, you know, even when I was in college, it was primarily beer and weed and some mushrooms. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was it. Um, but, you know, I, you know, friends, neighbors, uh, my parents, uh, neighbors across the street, the, the dad who was my parents' age, I actually sold weed for him um, in high school. And so, I mean, I, I really had a lot to lose in terms of getting, if I got caught, 
and got suspended from school or anything like that, you know, I had a lot to lose because I really wanted to go to college. Um, I really wanted to go into a technology field. And I knew that if I um, got caught doing something. So it was very rare that I did anything like that, but I did do it just occasionally to get free weed from a neighbor. Yeah. Um, I bought it for my rent, uh, my friends in school. <laughs> did, uh, did your family have an idea? I mean, your brothers or your oh, yeah. parents? Yeah. My, yeah. So um, by the time I graduated from high school, um, I, I was smoking weed with my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to grow our own, but we failed miserably. We had a ton of, but it was, it was weakish, weakish shit. I mean, it was not, <laughs> it wasn't even, I, I mean, I took a big, like a uh, uh, big trash bag full of it to school my freshman year to college and just gave bags of it out to my friends, whether they did anything with it, I have no idea. Um, so it was nothing like any of the stuff that we got commercially. So I, you know, I occasionally smoked my father. They allowed us to drink and smoke in the house because, you know, they'd rather have us in the house mm-hmm. than out driving around and, and so forth. Yeah. And we lived in farm country. I mean, I was, you know, yeah. a city of about 40,000 when I was a kid. And, you know, we lived in the south side of uh, town and um, it was all farms and rural apple orchards and so forth, you know, trails through the woods to different neighborhoods. So, you know, you didn't have to drive anywhere to get together with your friends. Um, I had a car in high school, which was probably a big mistake um, because, you know, I did get into some trouble with that. Um, but, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was tolerated in my family and it was, um, you know, they let us do things in our house so that we weren't out there driving around under the influence. Yeah. And we had it, we had a similar experience with, um, alcohol in the house and it wasn't, um, we never, I mean, and Megan mentioned this too. I mean, we never, took it to any level other than we would try it. We, I mean, we would try a sip of dad's beer or we would have a glass of wine, um, you know, maybe before we were 21, but, um, you know, I, I, they, my parents had the same philosophy. It was like, I'd, we'd rather you do it here and learn about it and learn how it affects you and all that. Um, than to, yeah. than to be out in, in public getting in trouble or, um, you know, going crazy. Yeah. So, um, I can relate to that. Right. So the culture, uh, where I grew up was very much, I mean, we're talking, 1974. <laughs> I know I'm dating myself here. <laughs> 1974. Uh, actually, I was 14 and 72. So yeah, 72 is probably the first time I drank to get drunk. And um, but my point here is, is I lived in a town where gathering of friends and drinking and you know unloading after work, uh, weekends. You know, I wouldn't call it, by today's standard. It was probably binge drinking. Um, but you know, we'd get together at parties, whoever's, uh, parent, whoever had parents that were either out of town or were out that night, we'd have a party at their house or we'd do it out in the woods or in the sand pit or, you know, things like that. And it was a usual thing. We've actually had our own little Woodstock where some friends of ours, uh, had built a stage out back and they had a number of different bands come through. They ran electricity out there and it was a hot sunny day and we started in the morning and went to the evening with fireworks and everything like that and you know it was a great time we're all sitting on a hill just like you would think it was back in the mid-70s it was like you know our own little Woodstock yeah I love that that's so great (laughs) so what um so how did you kind of transition out of high school years kind of into college I mean you knew you were going and um like how'd you transition there so I, I applied to a number of different engineering schools, and um, my, my, my dream was to go to the United States Coast Guard Academy. Oh. And um, I didn't get in, even though I had, uh, I think my senior year, I had a 4.0 average. 
but the applications went out the summer before. I had a tough beginning of my junior year because I was really heavy into partying. Mm -hmm. um, so I went to uh, WPI, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, which was my second choice. And that was, uh, that was an eye opener for me. For as smart as I was in high school, I really struggled there. Yeah. I mean, because everybody that went to WPI was probably one of the, you know, 10, 15, 20th brightest people in their, their respective high school. And I'm just saying that as kind of a matter of background, not to brag or anything. Yeah, no, I, now as I've heard. As hard as I thought I was, I was ill-prepared for the course load <laughs> and, um, you know, the pace and the course load. Mm -hmm. um, we had, we didn't have 13 week semesters. We had seven week terms. Yeah. So every seven weeks we had another three classes that we took. Man. So crammed a semester's worth of work. So I took, you know, physics 101 in a seven week period. I took physics 102 oh. in another seven week period, likewise with calculus and I took writing and so forth. So I really struggled. It was my first time living away from home. The drinking, I was legally able to drink. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a mixer um, my first night there during freshman orientation. There was a keg on the floor and a tub. And, um, you know, everybody was smoking weed. Our, our, our RA smoked weed. Yep. And uh, so that was kind of the thing. And I thought I was all that. And boy, <laughs> did I ever get taken down a few pegs after I started getting my grades in. So I left that first term thinking that I failed calculus and physics and I passed English. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turns out, it was a pass-fail grading system back at WPI. So, you know, showing up at physics, uh, physics was at eight o'clock in the morning. Calculus was at 10 o'clock. So uh, I don't know if they did that on purpose, but. I'm sure they did. It yeah. was real tough. <laughs> did you know uh, what you wanted to do at the time going into college? I wanted to get into recording. Uh, I wanted to be an audio engineer. And halfway through my junior year, uh, so fresh, uh, sophomore year, rather, when I started taking electrical engineering courses and talking to an advisor, I figured out that they didn't even offer that as a major. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> so I ended up You're going like, well, I'm here. to the field. Yeah, no, I, was, I knew I wanted to be an electrical engineer. I ended up going into systems engineering and design, and um, which served me really, really well um, in my career. I, I knew what I wanted to do when I went to the school uh, as in terms of major, but an area of specialty. They didn't offer that area of specialty. <laughs> but, uh, I, I did okay. Good. That's awesome. And so how are you fending with, you know, with drugs and alcohol at this time? So you're now you're in college and, you know. Yeah, I pledged a fraternity. I pledged yeah. the same fraternity as your dad. Yep. Um, and again, the drinking age was 18. So unless you were a 17-year-old freshman, <laughs> You know, the fraternities back then, I mean, we had a bar in the basement with a dance floor and a stage. So we, you know, we hosted bands and it was every weekend, every weekend. And everything we did around pledging and so forth was built around keggers. You know, we go to the football game, we'd have a keg in a wheelbarrow. Uh, we go to, um, you know, homecoming. It was a keg in the back of somebody's pickup truck. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was, it was, you know, beer was very, very prevalent. It flowed. And uh, it was just a really, really good time. And, it, and it, for me, the drinking was always a good time until um, it wasn't. So the one thing I will mention around this time frame, because I did say that I talk about kind of child, childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. A couple of, um, and I learned about this after getting clean and sober. Um, you know, to jump to the chase, I didn't get clean and sober until my uh, mid-50s. 
So I partied like that, either publicly or secretively, um, for over 40 years. Wow. And um, it took a, its toll on my marriage. It took its toll on my health. It took its toll on my relationship with um, my kids. Mm-hmm. But what it didn't take its toll on it was my advancement through my career. I, I ended up working at IBM for 22 years uh, as an executive for much of that. So I was very high functioning. Um, and that was probably a source of, um, I'd say, taking, taking me away from my emotional pain by burying myself in my career. Um, so like I said, I'll, I'll come back to that, but what happened, um, in my childhood. So when I went away my freshman year in college, my brother, Billy, um, who was 14 at the time was diagnosed with cancer mm. and cancer back in that time frame, especially the cancer that he had, which was in his neck and throat was a death sentence. Oh. And, um, so that, that was kind of uh, one of the things that I was trying to numb myself from um, when I went away my freshman year, because we found out the first weekend that I went to school that he had a bad football injury, and very shortly thereafter, we found out that he had cancer. I don't wow. know which we would have discovered first, um, but the, 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 um, the shoulder injury that he had in terms of a football injury was, was what you know, led us to discover that he had cancer. Um, so I'm, I'm going to pin that for a second because that was a very profound experience. And then at the age of 14, um, I witnessed a family friend um, tragically killed in an accident. I was 14 at the time, and I was uh, we were at a baseball game. My younger my brother that was a year younger than me, I I didn't have a game that night. His team had a game, and I was playing catch in the parking lot. And the younger brother of a, a family friend came running up. He was covered head to toe with mud. And um, he said, my brother Danny's been hurt. My brother Danny's been hurt. And so my uncle, who's a police officer, and I ran and followed him down into the woods. And there's a river down there with an old dilapidated dam. And what ended up happening, to make a long story short, is that the younger brother was up on top of the dam, and he was playing up there, and he dislodged a big chunk of concrete, and it landed on his brother down below. Oh, my God. So I was the first one at the scene because I was able to outrun my uncle. And he was still alive, and he was under this big two-ton chunk of concrete that landed on his legs and his lap. And um, that's the – that image of him there is the only thing I can remember other than turning away. Yeah. And the next thing that I knew, it was the next morning, and I was asking – the next thing I can recall was asking my father the next morning how he was doing. And he told me that he hadn't made, he didn't make it. Oh my God. So, um, 14, you said I was 14 and my parents sent me to school. Oh, no. oh, I had all of this unprocessed trauma, let alone grief. Yeah. Um, I, imagine that. I, I was never able to recall any of that until about eight years ago, uh, about six years ago when I went through some, um, trauma work with a very skilled psychiatrist. Um, to draw that out and have me be able to deal with that. Absolutely. And so it's so a very me... traumatic, yeah, though that was a traumatic experience and it was untreated trauma. Yeah. And um, I didn't know until I was in my mid fifties that that was still an issue in my psychological well-being. So in, in the case of that 
incident when you were 14. Um, just curious, had you already started drinking then or was that kind of before this? I'm just kind of more curious about that. That was before. That's before. a great point. That was before. Um, I didn't start drinking until we moved out of that neighborhood um, later on that summer. Yeah, interesting. Later on that summer. That, that fall, that September, we moved out of that neighborhood and moved to where we lived when I ended up, it was the neighborhood that was smoking and drinking and, and so yeah. forth. Wow. Wow. So absolutely, I can understand that, that that would be, I mean, not dealing with that and just continuing on, I, I could I yeah. could see how that would affect you. <laughs> right, right. And then, so like I said, when I was 18 years old, I went off to school and um, found out about in October that my brother had cancer. Um, so here I am away from home for the first time, you know, granted I was living close to home, but my family had each other to kind of cope with all of this. And we weren't a touchy feely family. You know, we didn't wear our emotions on our sleeve. Um, you know, we didn't really talk much about what was going on. I mean, it was four boys, my dad and my mom. Yeah. And, um, you know, God love her, um, you know, <laughs> with that because, yeah. you know, with my brothers and me, it was more like, you know, we were the three stooges and Bugs Bunny and F Troop and Gilligan's Island. And we were just meatheads when it came to behaving around my mother. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was making my brothers cry. We were fighting all the time. We were making my mother cry. <laughs> um, you know, it was just, just terrible. But anyway, so I kind of hid, I, I kind of buried myself in my schoolwork and partying as yeah. a way to cope with the fact that I had no real outlet to kind of process what was going on in my own life. Yeah. And what, what did, so you've gone through all of this, I mean, essentially, you know, in just 18 years of life, um, right. you know, and you're, you're kind of trying to figure this out. I mean, when did you know, or did you know at that time that, that you had a problem with drugs and alcohol or did that come a little bit later? Like, did you kind of know underlyingly so that yeah. you, that you had an issue at 18 or? No, it, it cause everybody else was doing it. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the culture back then, again, central mass, your, your dad grew up on you know, the South shore. It was the same thing down there. Yep. I've been to Hingham. I've been to Cohasset. I know what yeah. the deal is down there. You know, it's hockey, football, Red Sox and partying. Yeah. So I, you know, no, I didn't see what my, I was doing as a problem because everybody else was doing it. And after I figured out how to budget my time and to leave the partying for the weekends, I really buckled down that second term. Yeah. Second term of my freshman year, I did really well. I finally yeah. figured it out. Mm -hmm. Figured it out. And I had to separate myself. In fact, everybody used to call me the rag man because I would rag on everybody over the fact that they kept wanting to make noise and party and everything. And I wanted <laughs> to do my schoolwork. And um, so anyway, no, it wasn't a, I didn't see it was a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and no, back then, nobody really drank hard liquor. Yeah. And nobody was doing hard drugs. Interesting. And, yeah. and you said, as far as the trauma goes, you didn't really deal with it at all. You did like, how were you feeling? Do you remember like having unresolved issues or did you kind of just, as you said, focus on your schoolwork and kind of just focus on school in itself and, and keep going? I never learned how to um, be expressive or even to get in touch with whatever emotions and feelings I was going through. So I couldn't even articulate it because right. I couldn't feel it. Mm. And so I, I, I put it in a box. Yeah. It was a box. And when I went home every other weekend or every third weekend, or if I go to Boston to bring my brother for his chemo treatments and so forth, you know, that's when I dealt with that. And it was really, really hard to be home because my parents, I mean, you know, try to imagine 
a child, your 14 year old child going through this. And, you know, they were blaming themselves. So I ended up being the person that my brother relied on. Yeah. Um, and it's really hard for me to even talk about this now, you know, 40 something years after the fact, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll jump ahead to my junior year in school, which is where um, things really started to unravel for me. But um, so when I went home, I'd spend all kinds of time with my brother because, you know, he didn't want to make my parents feel as though he was a burden mm -hmm. and he didn't want to be a burden rather. And, um, you know, he was still relatively healthy at that time. It, you know, he didn't pass on until my senior year. Mm -hmm. And so he battled this thing for three years. Yeah. And um, through chemo and radiation, uh, he didn't have surgery. He was able to be in remission. Yeah. Point where he was, I mean, he lost all his a lot of weight. He was a football player, so he was about 6'1, 6'2, 220 pounds when he was playing football. He was an offensive and defensive lineman. When he was um, in his junior year in high school, he was able to get back in shape enough to play football. Wow. And believe it or not, he won his starting position back. Wow. That's so. Yeah, yeah, which was amazing because the whole school rallied around him, and um, and it was an amazing thing to see. And it was it was a great story. Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing I'll say is I can I can only relate to you in being an older sibling and that fierce love and loyalty. So I I, I absolutely understand. You know, and and you're saying that you know you and your brother probably didn't want your parents to feel that burden. I I can relate to that a lot in what we went through with Chris. Um, yeah. Like I felt that. Burden is not the right word. I felt that responsibility um, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be that person that could at least lift some weight off. Right. And so right. that was the approach I took. And I, and, you know, as an oldest sibling, I can absolutely relate to that. Yeah. So, and that's um, exactly what I did in my junior year. So um, sophomore year, more of the same, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> except <laughs> I, I, I gave up baseball. I, yeah. I, I played baseball at WPI my freshman and part of my sophomore year. And then I just wanted, here's where I started to settle mm -hmm. uh, to make room for my fraternity life. Um, so I ended up playing on softball, softball, uh, volleyball, and um, flag football intramural teams. Yep. And uh, because there was always a keg nearby. So, you <laughs> <laughs> know, right? Yeah, it's set up nicely, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So junior year, um, everything was going great. My brother was playing football. He got another injury in football, and he um, he broke his collarbone. Yeah. And uh, through the course of that, they found that his cancer came back. Oh my god! And the way I found out about that, I was I was living in an apartment off campus uh, my freshman my my uh, junior year rather. There was a knock on the door one night. I was getting ready to go to uh, the fraternity because we had our, our house meetings on uh, Wednesday nights, and my dad was at the door with one of his neighbors. Ironically, the guy I used to sell weed for. <laughs> so, um, you know, they came in, and um, I could see that my father was upset, and um, my friend, uh, my father's friend, Tom, um, you know, he asked the guys that I was there with, um, you know, can you give us a few minutes here? And so, um, so they left me, and I was with my father and Tom, and my father told me my brother's cancer was back. Mm. It looked really bad. We were just starting um, our fourth term of the year. So it would have been the end of March. It was right after spring break. So as it turns out, you know, I went home that weekend and saw my brother and, and, and so forth. So he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to battle this thing. I'm going to go back after it. And so I went back to school and I couldn't, I couldn't focus. 
And so I made a decision at that time um, because I learned that this, this was probably going to be a difficult stretch. Yeah. Uh, they didn't say that he wasn't, you know, it was terminal, but um, I made the decision that I was going to take that next term off yep. and spend as much time with him as possible thinking the worst. Absolutely. So I took that last term off and I went home and uh, he was going in for chemo, you know, and he was getting really sick. I mean, he was losing weight. I mean, he, he was, uh, he was a waif by the, by the middle of the summer, you know, he's down to about, you know, he lost over 60 pounds <sighs> and uh, he had no hair. He was white. You know, he was, uh, he was addicted to Demerol. Mm. Uh, I used to give him his shots and ironically, I never partook in it myself, but about the middle of summer, he comes to me and he says, listen, I want to, I want to tell you, I didn't want to tell mom and dad, but I want to end my treatment. You know, I just wow. don't want to anymore. And so we had a, he, he put that on me and I took it. I, I felt really proud of the fact that yep. he and I had a relationship where, you know, he could tell me that. So I ended up having to tell my family that, you know, he was basically accepting the realities of his situation, which was extraordinarily courageous for an 18 year old. Yeah, he was 18 at the time to make that call. I mean, he had a girlfriend, they went to the prom, um, he went to his graduation, you know, I wheeled him to get his diploma in his wheelchair because mm. he couldn't walk anymore, you know, so that was really tough. Yeah. So, but I decided to go back to school in September. Um, he was still with us. Um, when I went back to school, mm -hmm. so this was probably three days after the first term started. And I went home that weekend. It was Labor Day weekend. And um, I was studying at the Lemonster Public Library. And this is one of these moments that still gives me the chills. But I went up to the librarian and let her know who I was and was there any phone messages for me. Out of the blue, I just walked over. Hmm. She said, yeah, your uncle Fran called and said that you ought to get up to the hospital right away. Uh. Because uh, my brother was in the hospital that weekend. So I got my stuff and I went up to the hospital. They lasted till about 10 minutes after I got there. Oh, my God. And, um, which is amazing. We were all there. So we got a chance to be with him. But, um, you know, that he was that. out for you. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, that was really, really tough. Um, but, you know, I don't want to spend, you know, too, too much time on that. Other than the fact that, again, that was unresolved trauma. Yes. That, yes. So... What I did was I was there for the wake, you know, the services. I was there for the funeral. You know, I, I was playing on a softball team, and the championship was that weekend, and I couldn't play the semifinals, but they won, and they were in the finals, and I couldn't play because we, we buried my brother that day. Yeah. And so we had a gathering at the house, and I decided, you know, Mom and Dad, uh, this is after everybody left. I really would like to go down the field and, and, and play this game. Mm -hmm. And so I went down to the softball field and we had to win two games to win the championship and we won them both and, and so forth. And, you know, I was playing out of my mind and what a roller coaster of emotions and just yeah, things. Yeah. Oh my so God. I, 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 you know, I had to focus on something other than dealing with my feelings. That right. was why I did the softball. And I went back to school the next day. Wow. So my family were there for each other. I don't know what they did to cope. I went back to school. I went back to my schoolwork. I went back to my partying with the fraternity. I went back to my friends because that was the only place where I could express myself yep. to other guys to process all this. Yeah. And it was a huge mistake. Mm. It was a huge mistake. Um, you know, I, I got, I, you know, I, I white knuckled through it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I ended up graduating. Yeah. And um, which, uh, you know, the night before commencement was my first real signpost. 
We were downtown Worcester with some of the fraternity guys and we all got arrested. Mm. We all got thrown in jail. We got out of jail. We, we basically were able to get a, our hearing that morning before commencement. Yeah. And we were able to get out of jail in time to go right from jail to commencement. No oh shower, my goodness. No sleep, no change of clothes. <laughs> what did you get arrested for? I'm curious. Uh, well, if you can uh, say. See, couple of, so basically we were all in the back of my roommate's pickup truck and we were at a traffic light after the bars emptied out into the street in downtown Worcester. And one of the guys threw out a roll of firecrackers <laughs> and um, there was a police car at the corner where we were at a red light. Oh, so no. That got their attention. And so we were absolutely hammered. Yeah. They got us out of the pickup truck and one of my fraternity brothers didn't have his driver's license. He had a duplicate license and the cops were roughing him up over that. And mm. uh, I mean, you know, roughing him up physically. Right. And so I intervened and I got a club across the face. I had a oh. huge club in my face um, at my graduation pictures. <laughs> and so seven of us got thrown in jail for uh, disorderly conduct. Man, Mark, yeah. you've been through it. <laughs> you've been yeah. through it and you're well, only no, that's, that, that, Yeah, that's before, nothing. Right? Um, <laughs> so, you know, and I said to my dad beforehand, before the commencement, I said, listen, dad, um, I told him what happened. And I said, I would have done it again. Uh, if somebody's going to, you know, beat up one of my friends yep. over having a legally acceptable, you know, duplicate license, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to step in for him. And he was, pr he said he was proud of me. So, you know, that was, that was kind of a, a thing, but you know, I didn't always get into trouble when I drank, but anytime I did get into trouble, it was because I was drinking. Right. And so when you talk about signposts, tell, tell listeners what that means. Uh, so a signpost in AA parlance is uh, a warning sign along the way that should have, you know, kind of been a, you know, early indicator that, um, you know, your life is not going in the right direction and maybe, yeah. you know, take a look at, you know, your behavior. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we choose to ignore signposts until we hit whatever bottom we hit. Yep. And so, you know, the issue that night that we got arrested, it wasn't so much that I was falling down drunk because I wasn't, but I was belligerent. Yep. Um, I was, a, I was arrogant. I was cocky. Mm -hmm. I was mouthy. And, you know, I paid the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. So just quickly going back to, I'm just thinking through, all of the weight that you had on you through all of this. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes of all the weight that you had on you. And, you know, I mentioned before what I can absolutely relate to is the sibling thing, but you know, what, you know, in addition to, you know, the, the trauma that you had when you were younger and, and your brother, not only passing, but you having um, that sibling mentality of carrying you know, that burden, I, that's another part of the trauma, right? It's not just the fact that he was sick and then eventually passed. It was that you like, you're also putting this weight on you that you're not then dealing with. And, um, I will say personally for me later on, like now in my life, my feelings from back when I was so strong in dealing with Chris's situation for the family. That's just how I'm wired. It's not like that was a burden that they put on me. I chose that. That's the type of person I am, but it's amazing that it's coming up now for me to deal with that because it was almost, it's, I've always been strong enough to just get through it. Yeah. Um, and now I'm thinking back on that. So, so I'm, I'm just kind of channeling that. And then also thinking of all of the other things you went through and yeah, yeah you went through a lot. Like, well, what it taught me, it was that um, I could put things in a box and pretend mm -hmm. they're not there. 
I am extraordinarily skilled at two things. I'm, you know, I've got eight years of uh, very strong recovery under my belt. Um, but in hindsight, I was very good at lying. Yep. I would lie when I would benefit from the truth. Mm-hmm. Think about that for a second. Hmm. Um, and I was very good at compartmentalizing things and putting me in a box, turning the key yep. and hiding the key. And that and started I, early. My recovery is that your body remembers what your mind forgets. Hmm. Your body will remember that trauma. Hmm. May not come out for decades, but your body will remember. And that's something that's essentially, if I had to put into a nutshell, all the years that I just went through with you, mm-hmm. what came out of that was I used alcohol and drugs for the effect and for the ability to keep all of my emotional pain in the box. Right. Right. And, and then you've, so you've graduated, your brother has passed. Um, what, where do you go from here? Like where (laughs) I move in with your, I move in with your dad. You moved in with my dad. Oh man. Now it's all my first, my first job out of school, you know, I mean, back, back in that, at at that time frame. this is, we're talking 1980, Mm -hmm. over $20,000 a year, which was twice as much as my father was making. And you know, that was um, to have that kind of money. And to be single and to have a company car and to be living just outside of Boston and my own place. Um, and I, I, I was, I was I at a field sales and marketing job. So I was traveling. Yeah. And so I was 22 years old and all of my addictions and all my emotional pain came with me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I moved in with Big Tim. Big Tim. What a guy. The, How big, did you the guys big 10 years living in Newton, Massachusetts, uh, about five miles west of Boston. I love it. How did you guys get, um, how did you know each other? So I saw Tim out. Um, he still would hang around school. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he would come around school. He took some time off. Yep. So he, came, he came back to school and he'd, he'd hang around the fraternity house and, and so forth. He was very active in... Um, you know, working with the kids that were coming in that would have been a year behind him. Yep. And um, I said, listen, I got a job in Boston. And I knew that he was working. He was working in Lexington, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was working in Lexington. And so I figured, hey, let's try to find a place in 128. Because he had a roommate that he didn't like. And so, yeah, we gave it a go. And, I love it. Um, we had a two-bedroom apartment in, on the Waltham Newton line. And we had some other WPI friends that were living downstairs. Yep. Candy and Kathy. Yep. So the four of us and our extended friends. And Candy, by the way, you probably know this, is how Tim met your mom. Yes. I love that story so, so very much. Right, right. So I met your mom. I met your mom before your dad Mm -hmm. started dating her. How crazy is that? Yeah. So we used to have parties. Um you know, in, in, the, in the apartment. So that, you know, that's when I started drinking, you know, some hard stuff like vodka, but that's, yep. that's when I discovered cocaine. Mm. I discovered cocaine uh, during those years. There was a guy across the hall who was dealing mm-hmm. uh, a friend of mine from work also had access to it. And I spent a disproportional amount of my early income on that habit. And what that did for me was um, it allowed me to, drink more because I could stay up later. Ah, um, you yep. know, so yeah, that was, that was quite an eye opener at that time. 
And did that become, that became a habit for a while, I assume? It did, it did until I finally figured out that I wasn't going to be able to pay my bills. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so I never let it get to that point where, um, you know, I was in financial trouble, but I was aware enough about how that could easily, the only thing that you want to do when you do cocaine mm -hmm. is more cocaine. Yeah. I mean, when you drink, you'll get to a point where, you know, I've had enough. Yeah. Like I said, I wasn't really a blackout drinker. I did it on maybe two or three times in my life. Mm -hmm. Co cocaine just makes you want to do more cocaine. Yeah. 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 It was no amount of alcohol and no amount of cocaine in the world that would satiate me. Yeah. Wow. And, and so you found it around that time, cocaine, co cocaine became a thing in your life. Right. And the, and the alcohol, the alcohol really took off because... I could keep it under control when it was just beer and I was in school because mm -hmm. I had no money. Yep. You know, the gating factor in me not, you know, going out and getting wasted every night is I didn't have the money. Right. You know, I barely had enough to, to make ends meet. So I quickly learned that I had a physical craving for alcohol and drugs. That was around this time. So that's, yep, that's when okay. it started. And, and it wasn't so much that I was, viewing myself as an alcoholic is that there wasn't enough beer in that keg for me. Mm. There wasn't enough vodka in that bottle for me. And there wasn't enough cocaine in that vial for me. Did you, was there a moment that you realized that or was it kind of just seeding, you know, in your thoughts at that point? Like, was there, is there a moment that you can remember? Well, so I went on a couple of business trips early on in my career where I missed the appointment with a client the next morning or I came in late because I partied so hard the night before. Yeah. And, you know, so that was becoming, it wasn't really that, it wasn't frequent, but I can remember a couple of times where that happened or yep. going into service a customer very hungover. Hmm. So, you know, between that time, if, if your dad and I only lived together for a year, I moved in with four other guys out in Framingham, Massachusetts after that. And that was basically, you know, fraternity life part two. Two out of the three guys were also Fiji's <sighs> and from different schools. And we didn't know it until we met. Oh, my gosh. Um, from like Georgia. And one, one was from Penn State. And then we had another roommate and another couple of roommates. But anyway, we, you know, we were meatheads. We had a 10-room house. We had a weight room. <laughs> we had an empty fridge in the kitchen. We had a, a flop house for a living room. And each one of us had our own bedroom. Oh my god! And it was in a it was in a residential neighborhood that was very reminiscent of the Cleavers and Leave It yes. the Beaver. Oh man, you yeah. guys were a disturbance. <laughs> well, we invited all the neighbors to all of our parties, and they all oh came. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious! It, it was crazy. It was wow. Crazy. That was kind of the period up until I met my wife. Okay, I was going to ask you so when you met, when you met her. I was working in Boston. I was single. Um, I go. Um, I was very much into the Boston punk music scene. Mm -hmm. I met my wife at the place where I was working. I met Which Vivian. Was. Yay! That's awesome. So that's that was in April of uh, 1983, and we've been together since. Wow. I only wow. knew her for six months before I asked her to marry me. I love it. You just knew, right? Six months. That's so cool. <laughs> I love it. And hey, she said yes, right? <laughs> well, we, we had the same taste in music. We loved mm -hmm. Boston. She was a punk like I was. Yep. 
Um, our first date was at a club in Boston called Spit. Yep. And, you know, she was decked out in leather with a short, punky haircut. I wore camo. Um, I had long hair. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you had anywhere near the Afro or Fu Manchu that Big Tim did around no, those times. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I had straight hair. I looked like Tony Danza or John Travolta back then. I love it. That's, I, we're going to need a picture of all this. All well, over. my wife and I have a picture from the photo booth at this club spit from that night. And we no went way. back 30 years later and did the same. I love that. You're going to have to back 20 years later uh, and did the same. That's, that's incredible. I love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yay. So, was... so you guys have been together. Tell me about, um, tell me about your relationship and just kind of, you know, the, this effect of drugs and alcohol in yeah. that as well, you know? So she hated drugs. Mm. So she asked me to stop smoking weed before we got married while we were still dating. And I did. I stopped smoking weed in 1983 and never picked up weed again until probably 30 years later. Wow. 20, 29, 20, about 28, 29 years later. Is that because you had other things to fill that void with? Alcohol. 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 Mm. Um, and so I got, remember I told you whenever I drank, I didn't always get into trouble, but whenever yep. I got into trouble, it was always alcohol. Yep. So I quit drinking cold turkey as a result of just very immature behavior mm -hmm. and embarrassing her and myself. Uh, and I said, okay, you know, I have a problem. Yeah. Actually, before that, so I told you about, I, I had a couple of blackouts. Mm -hmm. I blacked out uh, at a bachelor party for one of my fraternity brothers, our fraternity brothers, where we went to a Red Sox game in Boston and went out afterwards and so forth. I drove home from Boston. Um, and I blacked out and I totaled my company car on Route 9 and oh. in fact, I should have killed the guy I hit. Oh my God. I was very, very fortunate. I destroyed the car. Um, I had a seatbelt. He was stopped at a red light. I just plowed into him. The guy behind me said I never touched my brakes. Oh. Um, and I don't recall, I don't recall getting in my car mm. in Boston. I broke my ribs in a diagonal across my chest where my seatbelt was. That's oh. how hard I hit him. And I pushed the rear bumper of his passenger side into the dashboard. Yeah. So the, the driver's side was not touched. He, he was sitting in the driver's side. He had no passengers. And uh, so that was signpost number two. Yes. So I ended up getting um, arrested for yep. um, driving to endanger. Mm -hmm. I had a car full of empties and they did not write me up for a DWI. Really? Yeah, um, I had an uncle, my, the uncle who I told you about who was with me the night that our friend died. Um, he was a, a retired police officer and he intervened on my behalf. Wow. Father. And uh, he, got the, he got the DWI taken off and I got to drive into a danger with men. I had to go to school to keep my license, but I didn't lose my license. Wow. So that should have been signpost number two. Yes. Um, but anyway... Um, signpost number three was that event where I embarrassed myself and my wife. I quit drinking. I went eight years without picking up a drink. Really? And I was stark, raving, mad. Oh. I was crazy. I was bad shit crazy because I never, I didn't develop the tools that you learn through your work with your brother, yep. how to live life sober. I didn't have right. a program. I didn't go to meetings. Um, I just said, I don't want to drink anymore. And you're not doing, at this point, you're not drinking and you're not smoking weed? You're not doing I'm not any doing any drugs whatsoever. Wow. How did you do that? 
willpower. Wow. But I was not sober. Right. I didn't deal with the underlying factors, the trauma, the pain. Um, I had um, what was becoming evident, a, uh, an untreated mental illness in addition to the trauma around anxiety. Right. And uh, which got worse and worse and worse as I got further into my career. And uh, at the time, I did not, I wasn't diagnosed, but later on, I was also diagnosed, diagno I am diagnosed with major uh, depressive disorder. So I'm what, what you call, you know, co-occurring a dual diagnosis, mental yep. illness and substance use disorder. Absolutely. So uh, important too. For So <laughs> at the end of that, too, so my wife and I were getting along great. You know, we moved to New Hampshire and, and so forth. I want to say that we went on a trip to New York. I thought that I could pick up, I thought I could drink again in safety, mm -hmm. you know, based upon the fact that I wasn't drinking. So with her knowledge and um, I wouldn't say her approval, I just kind of just dumped it on her. Mm -hmm. um, I started drinking again and lo and behold, you know, that was okay for a few years. But what I wasn't doing was being completely honest in terms of how much I was drinking and how frequently I was drinking. Sure. So I was sneaking. Yep. Um, so there was another signpost where I embarrassed her once again. Um, I, you know, embarrassed myself and her once again with my behavior while drinking. Because like I said, I wouldn't stop. Right. You know, as soon as I started a beer, there's a saying, I don't know if um, Chris and your family have heard it, that, you know, um, one is too many and a hundred aren't enough. That's my case. I, you know, yeah. I have an obsession. I, I'm thinking about the next one before I finish the first one. Hmm. And, and did you, so when you took that first drink after eight years, I mean, did you, did your body just kind of like say, thank you? Like uh, we're back. I mean, oh. you had to have felt that immediately. Yes. Oh, it was awesome. Right. That effect was back. It was, it was, it was awesome. You know, and then I was you were back, to, back to you, right? Or the yep. quote you that you thought you were, right? Right. Ugh, so, you know, so alcohol, um, like I said, got me into a little bit of trouble. Um, and, you know, I made the choice to quit. So that second time that I had that uh, embarrassing um, situation, one was at a, a concert and one was at a wedding. And so anyway, I embarrassed myself in front of other people and mm -hmm. I embarrassed her in front of other people. And, you know, I, I hated the thought of hurting her. And I said, okay, I don't need this. I, you know, I'll go without again. So again, I white knuckled it for a year. Oh my gosh. Again, no program. No and program. Did, but did you, did you recognize at this point that you had a problem that was enough to, to be involved oh, yeah. in the program? Oh yeah. I was very self-aware in that. Okay. Now, you know, I had oh, the energy. Man. And, and then when, um, and if I'm jumping ahead, stop me. But then when, when do kids come into the mix here too? Yeah. yeah. So kids come into the mix. Our, our kids are adopted from Korea. My son, Joey is 26 and my daughter, Selena is um, 24. Amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. That's we so adopted cool. two kids from Korea. Uh, I've done full amends and disclosures to both of them. So mm -hmm. my life with them is completely open book. Great. Um, and much like your family, which is a gift. So we got kids somewhere after I went back out after the, the one year of being clean and sober. Now, during this time frame, I started having surgeries. Mm, I see where this is going. <laughs> yep. And during this time, I was, um, my mom passed away in 1991, and that's when my mental health really started to go south. 
she passed away from lung cancer. Mm. It's funny because, you know, the impact of her passing was nowhere, you know, sad as it was, it was nowhere near the impact of losing my brother. Mm. Um, you know, of course, I was much older at the time and I had, you know, I was, I was an adult. So anyway, um, so I had major depression. I had anxiety. Uh, I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia. So I was being medicated, you know, at the time, Effexor, which was the only thing I can remember about Effexor was that when I stopped taking it, it felt like I was tripping. Yeah. Um, you, you, you get head trailing oh my and God. Uh, so forth. I was taking um, Xanax for anxiety and I was taking Ambien um, for sleep because I was, um, so, you know, enter into the picture. I, I think over my life, I've had uh, 11 surgeries with the exception of knee surgery. When we first got married, all of those took place after I was sober. From the moment I took my first Vicodin, I knew that I had arrived. I, I, I found what was missing in my life to make me supremely confident uh, supremely um, elated, mm. but pathetically and hopelessly addicted. Yeah. And so I went from Vicodins, I graduated to Percocets and then Oxycontin. Mm. My dad at the time, and I'm, I'm talking about a period of probably about 10 years yeah. that I had these surgeries. I mean, I've had both elbows. I've had both knees one knee multiple times, hmm. broken nose, back. I broke my elbow and tore my tricep. Uh, I've had an appendectomy that went terribly wrong, that I was septic. Um, I've had oh. three hernias. <laughs> wow. And I was delighted to have surgery because that meant that I was going to be able to score. And uh, all of these injuries were real. Yep. Um, you know, I was... Um, I was elated yeah. to be able to find my drug of choice. Yeah, incredible. And, and then how long did you use? I mean, how long did that go on? Uh, probably for the better part of 12 years. When I couldn't score through my own, I was on a pain management program for, I had scar tissue from one of my um, abdominal surgeries that was causing a burning sensation. Mm -hmm. uh, it felt like somebody was touching my lower abdomen with a, with a match Ugh. and it was constant, always on. And so um, I was in a pain management program where I was prescribed uh, 30 days worth of perk thirties. Um, and I graduated to higher level of dosage and I went in and peed in a cup and got another prescription 30 days later. And that was a constant in my life. I was a junkie. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was working full time at IBM as an executive yep. and I became so dependent that, you know, my day was comprised of four hour or six hour increments. You know, when I would kind of come off of that dose and jet up again for my next dose. Wow. But you said, I mean, you were functioning and, and you, you did great, right? It was working for you. Well, the problem was that, so I eventually had a neurostimulator installed in my back to deal with that pain because I knew that I was going to die yeah. um, if I couldn't come off the pain meds. Mm -hmm. I did not do heroin because I had access to pills. And that's the only reason. Right. I had access to pills and I had a great insurance program. 
Right. And I had doctors that were willing to prescribe them. And when I ran out of them, I would just go up to Maine and visit my dad who was in being treated for chronic pain, you know, who had 90 days worth at a time. Yeah. And at one time, you know, he was prescribed Oxycontin. So I was getting the best of the best and he and wasn't taking them all the time. Mm -hmm. So he never missed them. And, and I made amends with him before he passed on uh, yeah. because that was a real shitty thing to do. Right. And yeah. you mentioned heroin too. And, and just for those listening, heroin tends to be cheaper, correct? To receive and more readily available. Right. So that's why people tend to get to heroin. And it sounds like they graduate from parallel pills to heroin. I didn't yeah. need to do that. Yeah, right. I would have. I, and I've told my wife that. And I've told my kids that. If I didn't have access to pills, there's no question in my mind. No question in my mind. Where did it kind of come to a head for you? Ooh, good <laughs> question. So here's the other signpost. Between the years of 2010 and 2012, I was a hideously sick individual. Um, from the outside looking in, I had it all, mm -hmm. the big house, the wife, the two cars, the golden retriever, great neighborhood, executive at IBM, mm -hmm. but I was bloated. I had pancreatitis. Mm -hmm. Pancreatitis, for those who may not know, is a, a debilitation of the uh, inflammation of the pancreas that can turn into cancer. It's fatal. And I was in denial that I had it, even though that I was being tested to see if I did have it. And that was the working assumption. Mm -hmm. um, I was missing months of work at a time due to illnesses. And I was doing things that I never thought that I would bring myself to do. I was stealing. Um, I was uh, traveling around with old friends, sometimes ex-girlfriends, because I could get access to the drugs that I needed from them, padding my expense account. On any given day, I was taking Percocets, Xanax. I was smoking weed again. I was drinking and I was going to bed with Ambien. Wow. And the fact that I did not overdose in my sleep is something that I'll never figure out. Because yeah. my wife, Vivian, would say there were nights when I wasn't breathing. As a result of that, you know, it was a miracle that, you know, I didn't pass from that. Absolutely. So that came to a head in August of 2012, okay. where, and I was doing all of this um, in a secret life. Yeah. So I was presenting myself as a father, as a husband, as a worker, yeah. as, a, as a community leader, um, a coach, uh, youth, youth sports and so forth, leading, leading a double life. You know, I was sneaking the pills. I was sneaking to the local bars. I had alcohol in the basement. I had weed out in the shed uh, and then prescribed drugs that, you know, when I was getting those prescribed, I wasn't being honest with my doctors. I came to the point where because of the discovery and the shame that came with that, um, I had my first plan to take my life, first of two. And I had it all, all planned out. Fortunately, at that point, it was only ideation. Mm -hmm. And so I went to see my doctor, and they checked me into a psychiatric unit in Portsmouth Hospital, mm -hmm. where I spent um, five days in a Johnny trying to get my medication, you know, my situation stabilized. Yeah. And they were just going to send me off to 12-step. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. It was, and at the time, there was very little in, in the state of uh, New Hampshire and in New England in terms of inpatient treatment. Yeah. And so I ended up going to Michael's house out in Palm Springs, mm -hmm. which is uh, specializes in dual di diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And um, I did 28 days of inpatient. I took a, I took a six-month paid leave of absence from IBM. And I took another six months, partially paid leave of absence from IBM. I went down swinging. I drank every bottle of Jack Daniels on that flight, knowing that I wasn't going to drink anymore. So I went out there for 28 days inpatient. I did 28 days IOP or intensive outpatient living in a sober living home. Mm -hmm. I came home and the only condition under which I was allowed back in the house was to continue with that another 28 day IOP program, which I did. Yep. And I did more than 90 min meetings in 90 days, and I got a sponsor, and I did what people said I should do. Yeah. And what brought me to my knees was uh, the letters that I opened from my kids and my wife when I got out to Palm Springs in the day. Uh. So I knew that if I wanted to be a part of their life, that I needed to surrender to whatever other people told me and to, um, you know, develop some sense of um, commitment to a program. Unbelievable. And the, the letters, we had, we had similar stories with letters um, for Chris and it's so personal and, and I could see that that would hit you hard. And um, have you been sober since that moment? Yes, I have. Congratulations. I have. So yeah, um, I've been sober since. However, I had some difficulties with, um, with my mental illness. In 2016, four years ago, um, I actually planned to take my life. I, um, I was actually on my way. I'd just gone through, I won't go through the gory details, but I was planning to drive my truck into a bridge on the interstate. Oh, my God. And I got a phone call from my son while I was in the process of doing that. And he talked me off the ledge, and I drove past that bridge and up to the hospital in Portsmouth and checked myself in again. And I assume that's where we dealt with the, the unresolved issues, correct? Yes, that's where I started dealing with childhood trauma. Yeah. What did you get out of then finally dealing with that? Like, did I assume it's another whole weight that's lifted off? Yeah, it, it, it really is. I'd say, well, first of all, my depression and anxiety, anxiety were formally diagnosed. And uh, whereas before, it was just generally thought that I was dealing with depression. So yeah. I finally got the, the DSM diagnosis codes for the mental illnesses that I was dealing with. Um, I would have panic attacks, the anxiety. The, and I knew I was going to have to make some life changes, so I changed my career. That's when I got into the recovery business. I took early retirement yeah. from IBM. No, I, I, you know, I was never going to travel on business again. Uh, I can't sleep in a hotel. I can't be left to my own devices on the road. It's just it's, it's too stressful. It's too dangerous. So I got non-narcotic medication for both of those, and that's under control. And to this day, I still see a therapist once a week. Yeah. So I'm committed to doing the work to, to really get to the underlying issues that lead to my mental illness and my substance use. That's great. Um, but the trauma in particular, um, wow. So I went through what they call EMDR, and uh, basically it's, it's a process by which you're taken back to the scene of the traumatic event. Okay and getting to the underlying issues that you haven't resolved. So for me, with my brothers, uh, with, with the boy who was uh, killed by that falling chunk of concrete, 
I felt I was dealing with a lot of guilt that I could not have do, done more. I was 14 years old for crying out loud. It took I mean, eight firefighters to roll that thing off of him. And, you know, and so, like I said, I, and I was able to kind of recall bits and pieces of what was going on then. But basically I was able to forgive myself for that, the guilt that I had laid upon myself as a result of not being able to do more to save this kid's life. Mm-hmm in the moment and to be able to pull all that negative uh, toxic thinking out of that box that was tucked away. Yeah. Um, with my brother, it was a combination of a couple of things. Um, I couldn't forgive myself for not doing more. Even though I took time off from school, I was his caretaker that summer to give my parents a rest. I was the one he confided in that he, went, you know, he was prepared to die yep. and that he didn't want to be treated anymore. And I was the one that wheeled him up uh, to get his diploma. And while his entire class and everybody in the bleachers gave him a standing ovation um, in standing there for that, he, and so in the EMDR treatment that I got for him, I was able to go back to his bedside and he told me that he appreciated everything I did. Uh. There was nothing more that he could have ever asked for me to do and that he was okay. Basically put the baseball bat down, dude. You did yeah. everything you could. <laughs> you, really, really. And you, you have so much on you, right? It's mm. like, it's a lot for one person to carry. Right. And I'm sure, you know, even just his gesture of asking you to be the one, you know, I, I feel like is his way of saying thank you, you know? Um, yeah. So, but, you know, the unresolved, you know, I didn't deal with any of this in the moment because I went back to school. Right. But, you know, that, that whole three-year period was a traumatic event. Absolutely. And, you know, if you think back that, you know, from my freshman year until halfway through my junior year, you know, he was sick for probably two thirds of that and in remission for the other third. It's, it's just unbelievable. And I did, yeah. I just looked up EMDR is eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing for anybody that's interested in listening. <laughs> that's really, yeah, and what that involves is you, you, you hold these two, um, uh, almost like balloons that are connected to, they basically your fingers, pul- you, you get a pulsing. In your ear, there's a tone, and you get a, a vibration in your hand simultaneous, and it goes back and forth. And as a result of that, you're able to block everything out and be guided to a place. Wow. Like a guided meditation with that, thro- that throbbing in ear sensatory. And um, I've had it done a couple of times, and I mean, it was in, in, incredibly powerful. Through continued work with a therapist, we were kind of able to build on that experience and not only draw that out, but, you know, build uh, coping mechanisms and, you know, using CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy yep. to be able to tell myself that there is a solution here. Yeah. Um, there are things that you can do to deal with this. You know, this is not life-threatening. Right. Right. How, uh, how do you feel today? Um, I feel great today. I, um, you know, today being a collective today, you mean this point in my life? Yep. So... It's interesting. Um, I, you're not gonna. Maybe you do. You will believe that. I still go to five or six meetings a week. Good for you. Um, That's great. And I picked the pace up during the pandemic. First of all, I've done a lot of work in the recovery community since, um, but I'm always mindful of my own recovery mm-hmm. uh, first and foremost. Of course. Um, I've rebuilt the relationships with my wife and my kids. I've got a career going on that is amazingly um, fulfilling. I manage a, a grant, a $5 million grant that helps people who have been 
family members and individuals who've been affected by the opioid crisis, I help get them back into the workforce through finding them a job or getting them back into school at no cost to them. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing that for almost two years and we put over 210 people back into the workforce. Uh, so I'm doing that. I established with the help of my wife and another person, uh, a community recovery center here in Portsmouth, mm-hmm. Safe Harbor Recovery Center. It's right next door from where I am right now and that's up and running. Great. Um, but my own recovery, I, I thrive on solitude, but I have to walk a very fine line between solitude and um, isolation. Sure. Um, my higher power are the universal laws of nature. Mm-hmm. I marvel at things like the concept of gravity, the concept mm-hmm. of time, being out in, a, in the woods and hearing the wind blow and not being able to see it. Um, you know, yeah. birds, um, wildlife, I'm a photographer. In my recovery, the colors are much brighter, the air is so much sweeter, and the sounds are so much more vibrant and vital to me as wow. a result of being able to be mindful in the moment. So I, my, my road to recovery is built on mindfulness, and my That's spiritual condition. I'm not a religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. But COVID. So for me, the very first week, uh, it was like the second week in March where everything in New Hampshire shut down. Mm. And I knew I was going to be working at home for an extended period of time. And I knew that I was going to be isolated if I was not careful. Um, We weren't doing radio back then, so I wasn't able to come to the radio station. So I made a conscious decision to stay to the same routine and ritual that I did as if COVID didn't exist. Mm. So what that meant was I started doing virtual, these Zoom meetings. I do one every day at 7 a.m. Yep. I take Sunday off. I give myself a break on Sunday. I still see a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, I still, you know, I shower at the same time. I, I, you know, I I maintain some level of hygiene, (laughs) although I haven't had a haircut in about four months. Um, I, um, back to that college do. Hey, you know, I don't flop on a couch anymore though. You know, I I take my dog for a walk. I I have a lunch at my regular time. Mm -hmm. Um, I I walk the dog. I I, I exercise as best I can. And I go to my meeting. So I I have the same routine as if I was not homebound. Yeah. Doing that three months later. And I know people that are really, really, really struggling. And I'm grateful that I made that decision to do that um, way back when. Um, I still listen to what people tell me to do uh, that have yep. been in the program longer than I have. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got this podcast series yep. uh, that you and I have been collaborating on. Mm-hmm. And I end my day with uh, a daily inventory as well. Um, and not just the bad things or the things that I could do better, uh, but also the things that I did that I did well. Because it's, it's a learning experience. My goal is to be better today than I was yesterday. I love that. I and, love that. And um, I keep it really, really, really simple. Right. And I think that, you know, it's, I'm learning that also for in my life is just, you know, just channeling and reflecting and really paying attention to, you know, what, what you've gone through in a day and and how you could be better and self-awareness and and all of those things are so, so important. Talk a little bit about, I know it's funny when, when we decide, so Chris and I started recording uh, about a year ago. It was a slow roll. Um, but when we did uh, when we did get to the time that we were going to release this, it was funny because you, it, like the stories kind of started to merge and that you were saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm 
actually kind of going about something similar. So would love to um, just hear from you, you know, the importance of um, what you're trying to do on your end as well, um, mm -hmm. our collaboration, and then just to give us a little color on, um, I know that the in New Hampshire and where you are, there's, we've, you know, have seen it be hit pretty hard um, by this disease. So right, right. A insight there. Yeah. So on the first point, um, yeah, we came together. It was, it was strange. Um, my wife Vivian is on Facebook. I don't do social media uh, because I'd be, I'd be watching the notifications come in all day long. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm also diagnosed with impulse control disorder. Yeah, don't do it. Just don't. Which do means it. that I never paid attention in school. Um, <laughs> squirrel um <laughs> so she came to me and said hey because she's facebook friends with tim with tim's facebook friends with her so she stayed friends with them for some reason and appeared in her newsfeed that you guys were starting a podcast series and so i said uh, and i was thinking about doing something similar but what i couldn't do was i i, I didn't know where to start and so you guys um you know through me reaching out to you guys you guys had recorded, I think, three episodes at the time, yep. um, and I listened to the first one, and I says, "I got to get it. I got to get involved with this because your audience and your distribution is reaching. You know, you're reaching a target audience that we probably won't touch, mm -hmm. um, and we have a, a very, very strong need up here for uh, insights into how families are coping." Mm -hmm. And so I decided uh, to kind of piggyback uh, and ask you guys to partner in the in, to the extent that we could use, you know, your podcast to rebrand and post on our channels up here. At the same time, in parallel with that, I wanted to get our own channel off the ground here of local stories. Yep. And so Faded Series is presented in New Hampshire as is with a little bit of an intro and an outro uh, just to keep our kind of jingle and our and direct people to our website and so forth. Yep. Because uh, we, we operate as a nonprofit. WSCA is a radio station. We're a nonprofit, so we rely on donations and grants and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So in parallel with that, and what we have, I recorded the second chapter of this last night, the second episode rather, we have the Thanks for Asking yes. series of, and it's basically families, exclusively for families. I, we've got one episode that's been produced and released and it's been extraordinarily, it's been, had 40 downloads in the week that I've, a week since that we posted it. Great. I'm gonna release the second one probably by the end of this week. Great. And uh, the woman who was interviewed by me last night is very famous in New Hampshire. Um, and actually, she's very famous, period. She's been on Dateline. She's been on 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, she's been on CNN. She's been to the White House. Wow. Uh, personal guest of our two state senate, our two U.S. senators mm -hmm. in Washington. Uh, she's been to the, the uh, State of the Union. Yep. Um, and she basically, she's, she's, uh, she's opened a... Um, a residential treatment program for prenatal, for, so uh, young moms expecting. And then she has transitional living for up to two years for those people that graduate from that program into another one. Wow. Clinical, she's got online, uh, on, on-premise uh, staff 24-7 mm -hmm. to help with the pregnancy, to help with the baby, to help with the you know, nursing and so on and so forth. And they deal with you know, um, uh, babies that have been born uh, dependent on opiates and so forth. Yeah. She's a very, very um, powerful figure. And, and so we're very grateful to get her as our second interview. That's so, so exciting. So, yeah, we got those two parallel things going. So just a quick note about New Hampshire. New Hampshire, four years ago, uh, we had the second highest per capita opioid overdose deaths in the country. And we were first for those that are age 
17 to 21. Wow. Um, and we were the second lowest in terms of state contribution into treatment and recovery programs. Wow. So the opposite ends of both spectrum. Um, we've come a long way now. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got a, a hub and spoke model where there are nine entries, geographical entry uh, ports into the treatment and recovery engine within New Hampshire across the state. Mm-hmm. We've got sober living homes. We've got drug courts. We've got all kinds of programs. We've got the grant that I manage that keep people sober by helping them find work and getting them back on their feet. That's so great. And so we wanted to, we at WSCA and me in particular wanted to have a podcast series that was able to serve the people of New Hampshire with success stories for families. There are a lot of resources out there, a lot of stories, but there's a desert. It's a desert out here for programs and awareness and success stories for peer family members who are willing to come forward and help others. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, what you're doing is incredible and you've essentially, I mean, you, you are on a volunteer basis, but what you're doing is, is, just so needed. And I'm so glad that we kind of came together at the same time. It was really cool. No coincidence by any means. I, I just think that it's, you know, it's, it's meant to be something that's yeah. discussed further and that's what right. we're trying to do. And, and it's really worked well that at the same time, it's kind of come to a head. So um, I'm, I'm really pumped about that. And where can um, faded listeners find you um, uh, with both your podcast series and you happen to be a radio DJ as well. So where can we listen to you, um, you know, right. on your weekly? <laughs> so you could find the podcast at um, www.wscafm.org forward slash listen. There's a podcast link that's in there Great. and uh, you'll find us there. I'll send you that so you can post it on your website. Perfect. I think we're actually one of your uh, partners that are up on the website already. You are, absolutely. And then regard, so I never grew up. My emotional development was arrested at 14. Yep. So I still have the maturity, emotional maturity of a 14-year-old. And I say that with pride. Um, (laughs) And my musical tastes reflect that. So I do a weekly, a partner of mine who's also in recovery, we do a weekly radio show. It's a four-hour show on Friday afternoons from 1 to 5. You can mm-hmm. find it on our webpage that I just gave you. And it's called Pirate Friday with Scurvy Dog. My nickname is Scurvy Dog. I love it. Um, Where does that come from? Because uh, I used to do a radio show here early on in my radio career called Scurvy Dog Radio. And it's a pirate theme. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, and pirate radio. So, you know, pirate radio is underneath the radar from the FCC. And yep. so I kind of play off that theme. And basically... So Nobody tells me what to play. Um, and I basically play four hours or in your face punk, garage, hard rock, alternative country, outlaw country, uh, rarities from my childhood. I, you know, I play six decades of music and it works. So cool. It works. And I, there's a lot of comedy yeah. uh, politically. I'm, I'm kind of on the left and but I, in good fun. I'm poking a lot of fun at our president. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that, like I said, in, in good fun, but I also poke fun at other things I don't like. Um, so I come into the show very angry at one o'clock on Fridays and I use it as a palate cleanser for the weekend. That's what we call it. It's a palate cleanser for you. Love that. <laughs> well, we'll and there's no make- commercials. There's yeah. you no, know, it's, it's, it's just a lot of fun. I, oh, it's, it's I love it. You had me at no commercials. I'm in. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll get everybody on board to, to listen to you um, on your weekly. And 
last um, but not least, and I wish we could talk for two more hours, which I, I think we well, could. Well, I'm gonna, I, no, before you go. Yeah. And this is for your listeners that are listening right now. You better not edit this. I'm going to interview you. Oh, I would be so nervous. Your Isn't that story, weird? Your story is missing. My story is missing. You're so right. And I've actually, I am going to interview you. Let's do it. You name the time. Let's do it. I'm going to interview you. You're going to be part of, you're going to be co-branded for Faded as well as Thanks for Asking. I would love that. I think it's, I think it's great. I would love to tell my story. I would be nervous too, you know, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm better at being the host, but I would absolutely love the chance to tell my so, story. Yep. Um, there'll be no surprises in what happened here. I'm an open book with my family now. Yep. Um, you know, when I did my amends, I cleared the slate and my slate is still clean. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm so happy for, for you, for where you are in your life now. It's, you've been through, you've been through a lot. And I think it's uh, whatever you're doing for yourself is working, it seems. And you've got a great family and a great life. I'm so glad to have met you too. You know, like I think it's, it's so funny because when dad first reached out, I was like, oh yeah, sure. We'll talk to him. And then I was like, this is really cool. Like this is something. Or I thought you were going to say it's kind of creepy. You know, no, no, my not dad's at all. <laughs> no, I feel like you're family. You are family. And I, you know, it's, it's funny because you know, for you to have known my dad before I knew my dad, of course, it, it's and your mom. cool. Like, it's just really cool, you know? I mean, I knew your mom as well. She's and mom, yeah. fraternity parties. She went to school in the same city, Worcester. It's crazy. So there's a very good chance that she's been to fraternity parties at my fraternity house. Oh, Lord. No one was ready for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She probably went to a Fiji Island party. She saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> I've seen some pictures, but I love the stories. I, it just, it just makes me smile. So, um, anything you want to leave, um, the listeners with before we go? Um, we are all survivors. Uh, there is no shame asking for help. People who are struggling as, um, you know, struggling with addiction themselves, there are paths out of this. There are solutions, there are resources. And what we're trying to do here on my end is to put a spotlight on those resources that are available for families because stigma is a huge barrier yeah. for family members to come forward. You know, they've got to face their friends, they've got to face their workers, they've got to face their, their, uh, their brothers and sisters and so forth. So it's not easy for family members to put themselves out there. Yeah. And it's almost like it's an even more secretive society than people who are in recovery themselves. Yeah. And so uh, addiction is 100% a family disease. And I encourage family members who are listening to this to get help, talk to others, use the resources that we're putting out there for you as a result of this program. I love it. Thank you so much for your story, which is incredible. Um, and for your insight and all the work you're doing for across the board. It's just, it's just awesome. Let's both keep it going and let's hold each other accountable on that. And um, thanks, really, thanks for everything. This has been a blast. Thank you, Jackie. And you have you a great night. You are awesome.